focus on God's blessings. I was, was struck by this, uh, this, this analogy, Jared Wilson in his book called Gospel Wakefulness asks you to imagine that you're driving down the road, your car stalls at a railroad crossing. Now, understandably, you're nervous. Try to start the car's engine. But you become even more so when you see a train turn the corner distance. And that gap between the train and your car is closing quickly. The train's engine and uh, the, the, the horn is, is just blaring and it's loud. The engineer's thrown on the brakes. But you're way, way too close. So you move from trying to get the car to start to trying to unfasten your seatbelt. But fear has made your hands stiffen and, and, and shake and you can't get the seatbelt unfastened. And the train is rushing toward you and you know you're going to be hit. And you are, suddenly, from behind. A man in a truck behind you has decided to ram into your car and push you off the tracks. At the same time that he does that, he is destroyed. And, and, his, and his truck is destroyed. He is killed by the impact in the very spot. Wilson goes on to say, you get out of the car, you're shaken. You're frightened. You're, you're terrified by the, the gruesome scene that's before you. You're in shock over your rescue or sacrifice. You are grateful in a way that perhaps you've never been grateful before. Even in, in your sense of, of, of terrified awe, it feels awfully good to be alive. You feel a bit woozy, so you sit down, kind of lean against the trunk of your car, and as you're trying to retrieve your cell phone from your pocket to call 911, you marvel at how little damage there is to the rear of your car, and, and then you hear a, a whimper that comes from the trunk. You didn't know that before you'd left the house. Your kids were playing hide-and-seek, and your youngest son decided to hide the trunk. As you open it up, frantically discover that he is miraculously unharmed. You suddenly realize the total greatness of the loss that you almost suffered. Your gratitude, your amazement, your new outlook on life takes a giant leap forward. That, says Wilson, is the difference between the gospel wakefulness of conversion and a greater sense of wakefulness that often occurs later in our lives. That analogy just grabbed me this week, and it, and it resonated with something that, that's been rattling around in my head. This, yeah, I know, there's plenty of room for it to rattle around. But in this time of the year, you know, we come into the holidays, it's, it, it, it's, it's always a, a challenge to approach what we know to be we know so well, it is so familiar, the theme of, of thankfulness on this Thanksgiving Sunday. What should we talk about? Well, of course, we should talk about being thankful, being grateful. I was grabbed by a perspective on thankfulness that, that I really hadn't considered before. In terms of its impact on my life, it was not on my my list of things to be thankful. Do you make lists? I'm a great fan of making lists, especially around Thanksgiving. I think it's good to make lists because if we're really honest, if we take time and sit down and start to write out things that we're thankful for, pretty soon we're going for more paper. 
You know, a list becomes a very visual reminder of the incredible blessings that God has given us in our lives. Much to be thankful for. And so my, my hope this morning is that, that you'll be stirred to, to live with a renewed sense of, of what Wilson calls gospel wakefulness. A sense of, oh wow, look what God has done for me in Christ so that perhaps we'll all add it to our list. Now, I'll confess to you this morning, this is, this is not something that's deeply profound. In fact, it's, it's pretty simple. Your response is likely going to be, I, I know this. I've, I've known this for a long time. Here's the thing. So I. I'm convinced that, that this one perspective on thankfulness is something that that I do not faithfully live in a way that shows that I really know it and believe it. And you know what I always say about the shoe? If it fits, then feel free to put it on this morning. But here's the deal. I, I can't come right out and tell you what it is. That would just, you know, it's a giveaway. It's too easy. I, I want you to wrestle with it for a minute because I have been wrestling with it all week. I want us to start... If I can say it this way, I want us to approach it from, <clears throat> from a theologically dark place, a theologically uh, desperate place so that, so that the truth of it really takes on a, a brightness and really shines uh, in, in, in bright contrast. At least that's how it, it worked for me. So let's start with a neighbor question this morning. There are two of them. Can we do two neighbor questions on morning? I, it's kind of Thanksgiving special. So... I want you to turn to someone nearby, and just for a minute, I want you to talk about sin. Now, you don't have to personalize this. You don't have to talk about your sin, and they don't have to talk about their sin. I, what I want you to do is I want you to, to answer the question, how has sin affected life on earth? That's it. How has sin affected life on earth? Yeah, and you've only got a minute, so talk fast, okay? How has sin affected life on earth? Ask your neighbor. Okay. I'm sure this one could go on and on. Who wants to start us off? How has sin affected life on earth? What do you think? RJ. Okay. Separated us from God's purpose for our lives. That's huge, by the way. It's pervasive, Jim. Okay. It just shows up everywhere. Okay, good, good, good. It's insidious. All right. Right? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, good, good. What else? Anything else? Just jumped out to enter. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. It has twisted everything. It's, it, it's still, we still recognize it, but yeah, it just, uh, it's not as it should be. Zach? Good. Okay. Just 
just going to slide on into it. Okay, okay. Good, good, good. Anyone else? What oh, Diane? Wow. Wow. I think we would all agree that sin has pretty much wrecked things. What, I mean, does, does, sin, does sin bring anything that is good? I mean, you know, granted, we, we, sort of, we sort of jump ahead and we understand that as, that as a result of that sin and its impact on creation, you know, God and His love gave and, 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 and redeemed through His Son. But, but apart from that, is, is there anything good? Does sin ever produce or bring anything good? Romans 8, Paul tells us that that the whole creation, not just humanity, but the whole creation groans and longs for the day, the final day, when God brings history to a close. When redemption story comes to an end, Paul says, when all creation is liberated from decay, boy, there's a word, liberated from decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Yes, sin is pervasive. It is everywhere. The, the cost of sin upon the whole of human experience is so much greater than we, than we know or understand. We, we are so far removed from the garden experience, the perfection that God created. One act of disobedience redefined all of human history. We went from perfection to fallen in a blink. And thousands and thousands of years of sin upon sin upon sin has wiped out any memory that we might have had of the garden. That, that place that we were created in and for to live in relationship with God. Relationship of unimaginable intimacy and fulfillment. Gone. Just like that. And here we are thousands of generations later, not even, if we're honest, not even able to, to imagine what it was like. The enormity of the loss is just so much greater than, than the few verses that describe it. In Genesis chapter 2. The story is told that in the 1920s, Ernest Hemingway's colleagues bet him that he couldn't write a complete story in just six words. But he did. And history says they paid up. And Hemingway is said to have considered it his best work. Six words. Here they are. For sale. Baby shoes. Never For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Quite a statement. Fallen human condition, elements of, of death, loss, brokenness, sorrow, perhaps a longing for peace. We live, my friends, we live in a world that is thoroughly broken. It is a world that is full of thoroughly broken people. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. That's quite a statement of humanity. Condition of fallen humanity. It's not pretty. And if we're honest, we hear that and we think to ourselves, really? Is it really that bad? I mean, that's, that's how far away we've gotten from perfection and don't know it. We hear a statement like that and we think to ourselves, I know a lot of nice people who are not like that. No doubt, we do. From a human perspective. Some are far worse than others. But what we have to understand is that Paul is, is giving a description of the human condition unredeemed humanity from the perspective of a holy God. And in a word, hopeless. Another word, disaster. Another word, lost. Okay. Are you feeling like we're at a dark place? Theologically, I said, we've got to get to a dark place in order for that, that sense of gospel wakefulness to begin to set in. So we're, we're, at a, we're at a dark place, and if, and if you're feeling like this is a dark place, that's a good thing. That's where we need to be. So let's, uh, let's stand and read together from Romans chapter 8 this morning. It's a, it's a much brighter place that we'll read from here. Two congregations this morning. Let's put you folks over here on the north as Congregation 1 and Congregation 2. You're over here on the south. So here we go. Congregation 1, start us off. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. My brothers and sisters, we could say Yahoo! Yahoo! Because this is the word of the Lord. Woohoo! Go ahead and be seated. Man. Good stuff. Okay. Amen indeed. <laughs> All right. Here's your second neighbor question, neighbor discussion. On the screen, Heather, can we have that, uh, that verse that we read together? Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Here's what I would like you to do. I want you to 
to consider together what is Paul saying here and specifically what does he mean by obligation? Okay? Just for a couple minutes. What's, what's Paul saying and, and what does he mean by obligation? What is the word obligation saying here? All right? Wrestle with that for just a minute or two. Okay, you ready? Did you wrestle with it a bit? This takes us a little closer to that sense of gospel wakefulness I had this week. Can't you just feel the excitement building? Yeah. Yeah. All right, what'd you think? What do you, what'd you wrestle with? Nat? Whatever the rules are. Okay, okay, all right. We'll go with that. Lee? Mm. A duty of... Mm -hmm. Aha. Okay, good. Did you hear that? Do I get to or do I have to? Do I do this out of a sense of duty or do I do this out of a sense of gratitude? Both. Okay. Good. Good. What else? Anything else? That it's spirit-led. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What Paul is, it, that word obligation is so critical here because, because the idea of obligation gets at the idea of it's something that that we must do, and yet we need to tie it into what Paul is saying here, that we're not obligated to the sinful nature. What we read earlier is that those who live in the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, those whose minds are controlled for the, by the sinful nature cannot please God. Paul is... Paul is using, he's using the word obligation in two different settings. The first setting that he's talking about is that all of creation in its fallen state is obligated. Obligated in the sense that sin is pervasive. Sin permeates every corner of creation, every nook and cranny, so that all of humanity lives under the obligation of sin. All of humanity, apart from Christ, is that description from Romans 3, that really bleak description that we read earlier. That is the way that it works because obligation carries with it the sense of, of captivity. That's, that's other Pauline language when he talks about we are no longer slaves. We have been set free. Same kind of language that all of creation is under the bondage of sin. It is obligated to sin. It can do nothing else but live according to the rules of sin. Paul is saying we're no longer obligated. Because of what Christ has done, 
we have a different obligation. Paul is saying that, that those who belong to the Spirit of God now have a different obligation. You remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he talked about if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. It's very, it's, it's similar language. The thought pattern is the same. Paul is suggesting that, that humanity apart from Christ is shaped by sin. It is obligated by sin. It, 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 all of life's orientation is sin. Well, sin at its, at its basic level, we've talked about this before, is rebellion against God. It is not a recognition of who God is. It is a self-word focus, not a God-word focus in life. So that even the most selfless person that we know, even the most giving, generous, loving, kind person that we know, apart from Christ, falls into this category of living under the obligation of sin. From our human perspective, they look great. In fact, they look a lot better than I do some days. But from heaven's perspective, if they are not in Christ, they are obligated to sin nature. Those who are in Christ have their lives changed. They are given a new orientation. They come under a new obligation. They can live differently now. They can live the way that they were created to live because God has changed their orientation and has inhabited them by His Spirit. Make sense? So here's what it means. Here was the gospel wakefulness for me this week. God's people do not have to sin. Now you're sitting there and you're thinking, hmm, he's our pastor and he's just come around to this. How long, how, how long you been doing this, guy? Now, I, I assure you, I, I, I've known this. I've always, I've always believed this. And I know you do too, but, but here's the question that doesn't go away for me. If we are not obligated to sin, if we do not have to sin, why do we sin? Do you have an answer for that? I don't either. I'm going to take a stab at it here. There are answers that we use. I know this because I've used them. We say things like, well, sin is subtle. It is sneaky. I agree. The enemy is crafty. I agree with that too. The enemy is powerful. We're fallen. Yes. And even though we are redeemed, we still have this, the sin nature in us. It's residual. Okay. God, God somehow, He knows and He understands and He forgives. Based on what we've read here, I'm not buying that baloney. It doesn't fly in the face of what Scripture teaches. I think this passage is calling us to be much more honest than we are about sin in our lives. If we have the Spirit of God living in us, and God has changed our orientation from a self-word focus to a God-word focus, then why do we still sin? You remember the statement by Lewis that we have used in the past. C.S. Lewis said, we are half-hearted creatures. 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. I think Lewis, in those words, is getting at one of the fundamental reasons, if not the fundamental reason, that we continue to sin even though Paul says we are not obligated to sin. It's not like we have to. It's not in our wiring any longer. We've been rewired. We don't have to sin. I believe that so often we are not convinced that the new life that God has given to us in Christ has really much to do with this life. I think we're pretty sure that it has to do with heaven. When Jesus said, I've come to give my followers abundant life, in our minds, we immediately sort of click to heaven because we're just convinced that abundant life doesn't happen here, not in the way that Jesus intended. We're pretty sure that, that abundant life, new life has to do with heaven. And in the meantime, here we are, we're living in this crappy fallen world and we've just got to slug it out until we get to heaven. And when that happens, the other question that comes into my mind is how are we different from those who don't know God? How are we different from those whose orientation hasn't been changed? How are we different from those who are still obligated to the sin nature? I realize that this sounds awfully harsh, but I, I, think, I think that is in large part what goes on in our lives. You see, so often the sins that we give into, you know, and, and I'm not going to give you a list. That's too easy. You know, the responsibility becomes ours to wrestle with the Spirit of God. Where are the sins in my life that I'm giving into? The sins that we give into are more often than not, if not always, sins that we choose to give into. We don't ever have to give in to sin. That's what Scripture's teaching us. But we give in to sin. And I think oftentimes we give in to sin because we somehow think that the life that God has rewired us for is for heaven. And there's still enough of that residual sin nature in us, and the enemy is still alive and well, still offering to us the same lie that he offered to Adam and Eve in the garden. God is holding out on you. There is something better. He's withholding some goodies. He's not letting you know. And then we give into those things that we think we deserve those things that I, I can't tell you the numbers of times that, that I have been angry in my life I, I, I've wondered sometimes if I have an anger problem I, I've been angry at people and, and the thought in my mind goes something like this well they said this or they did this I have a right to be angry no I don't ever I don't ever have a right to be angry at someone for something that they have done against me. I need to be channeling my anger against 
all the things in the world that stand against God do it in a righteous sort of a way. I, I don't know. I don't know where you give in. I know where I give in. And for whatever reason, we somehow buy into the idea that God is not enough. The irony is this, and we all know this. We've said it this morning. Sin offers nothing but pain and destruction. And we live in a world of pain and destruction. We've been given this incredible gift of freedom from sin's obligation. We never have to sin. Freedom to tune into and live the life that God created us to live. Now, I grant you, it's not as easy as maybe it was in Perfect Garden. You know, we're striving to live a life and not sin in, in, in a fallen world. But the beauty of what Paul teaches us here is that God has given us the Spirit. It is His Spirit in our lives that calls attention to those things, those areas where we're going to compromise, where we're going to give in, where we are somehow going to think that God has, has withheld from us. Does this make any sense at all? I think what it boils down for me is, is the awareness that even though we live in a world of pain and struggle and broken people and hurtful stuff and broken relationships and, and just an abundance of unfair and unjust situations that, that evoke emotional response from us, we do not ever have to sin in our daily living and our response to this fallen world. Will we sin? <laughs> Probably. But in our wrestling with the old nature, that has, that has not died completely, we, we will probably lose an occasional battle, but, but we don't have to. It's not a form of language. I never want to lose easily. And far too often, I do lose easily. I do hear the prompting of the Spirit, and I just move on by. I ignore it. To believe that God is holding out on us, to somehow believe that, that the life that He calls us to live now is not really for now, it's for later. No, it's for now. It's, it's in large part so that, as we've so often said before, we can, we can show the world that is watching our lives how life was intended to be in intimate relationship with the God who created us living for His glory, for His honor. So I want to suggest to you today in this Thanksgiving week that maybe one of the things that we need to, to put on our list, or if it was on your list, good for you, move it up near the top. Move it right up there next to the number one thing that we're thankful for, and we all know that that is the salvation that God has given us in Jesus. That's the number one thing that we ought to be thankful for. That ought to shape everything that we do. But number two is that we don't have to sin. Not only has He given us salvation in Christ, He's given us His Spirit to live life, directing us, leading us, prompting us, empowering us, convicting us, cautioning us, counseling us. The truth that we do not have to sin. I want to move that onto my list for Thanksgiving week. For all of life, when conversations about ways in which we show gratitude to God comes up. I think one of the best ways that we express our gratitude and our thankfulness to Him is by living a life that is purposeful about not sinning. It's, it's living out our thanksgiving.
Christ, why don't you come on up this morning, lead us. I want to just close with, with a story that Tim Keller has written about. He's a pastor in New York City. He's written a story about a woman who, who began coming to his church in New York. She'd never before heard a distinction drawn between the gospel and religion. That is, a distinction between grace and what is often a, a works-based righteousness. She'd always heard that God accepts us only if we are good enough. She said that the new message was scary. I asked her why it was scary, and she replied, well, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask me to do or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace, then there's nothing that he cannot ask me. She understood the dynamic of grace and gratitude. If when you have lost all fear of punishment, you also lose all incentive to live a good and selfish life, then the only incentive you have ever had to live a decent life for was, was fear. This woman could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had an edge to it. She knew that if she was a sinner saved by grace, she was, if anything, more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. She knew that if Jesus really had done all this for her, she would not be her own. She would joyfully, gratefully belong to Jesus who provided all this for her at an infinite cost to himself. Infinite cost to himself. Great investment in us. The spirit of living God lives in us. We are no longer obligated to the same nature for God's glory.